the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and I'm in San Francisco right now, covering Salesforce's annual gathering, Dreamforce 19, where there are 171,000 registered attendees. So I'm calling in the opening of tonight's show, where we're going to focus on social services right here in New York City. My first guest is Allison Sesso, the Executive Director of the Human Services Council. She describes the state of the sector like this. As I describe it, the the, the institutions themselves are mirroring their clients mm. in that they are financially uh, strapped. Uh, they, you know, live pay roll to payroll, just like the, the individuals that they serve live paycheck to paycheck. And one event can really undermine them. And, and we've seen nonprofits go under. And then you will hear from Eric Weingartner, the CEO of University Settlement and The Door. The door is a -a one-of-a-kind model that has proven to be remarkably effective. In the early 1970s, a group of volunteers thought about the idea of a holistic integrated um, intervention whereby multiple programs, multiple services would be available to at-risk young adults. And over time, that's scaled into being the door. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, November 24th. Foundations and charities worldwide spent $504 million on responses to disasters and other humanitarian crises in 2017, $365 million of which came from North America. The Just Capital Foundation, in partnership with Forbes, has released its 2020 ranking of the most socially just companies in the United States, topping the list for the second year in a row, Microsoft. The Breakthrough Prize Foundation has announced the creation of a new prize that recognizes the achievements of outstanding female mathematicians. As regulations require electric cars to make noise, Uruguay's Toyota division is experimenting with a sound they hope stimulates plant growth. And finally, new research suggests diesel exhaust could contribute to hair loss and baldness. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back with Allison Sesso of the Human Services Council right after this. Upstart Collab is a new national collaboration connecting artists, impact investors, and social entrepreneurs. Upstart's mission is to create more opportunities for artist innovators to deliver social impact at scale. Follow them on Twitter at Upstart Collab. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. In New York City, the voice of the human service community is quite simply the Human Services Council. They help lead the sector on issues of the greatest importance. And no matter what the economic climate or who is in office, this is challenging work. And here to discuss it with us is Allison Sasso, the Executive Director of the Human Services Council. Good evening, Allison, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you so much for having me. So what kind of services are we talking about here, Allison? Oh, it's everything that that supports well-being for New Yorkers. It's from child care to mental health services, substance abuse, after school, senior care, uh disaster help after a disaster happens, like Hurricane Sandy. Mm-hmm. So it's everything that supports the human needs of New, of New Yorkers. Yeah, and about how many organizations are, are part of the council? So there's about 170 in our membership, mm-hmm. which collectively provide about 90% of the services in, in the city. Walk us through the process of how government goes about providing human services to, to communities. Well, government doesn't really directly provide services mm-hmm. to communities. It is my members that do that work uh, through a contracting process with the government. Um, the government puts out what's called a request for proposals. The nonprofits review the request for proposals, and they bid on those contracts, and then they get paid or underpaid, I should say, for, these, <laughs> we'll get to that. for the provision of services um, to New Yorkers in, that, are, that, that are in their communities. Yeah. And in aggregate, how large are those contracts put together? 
Uh, there are about $6 billion that the city spends on those services. Yeah, it's pretty significant, which I think a lot of people don't recognize just how much of an industry it is. What is the current state of the human services sector in New York? Not great, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Uh, As I... As I describe it, the, the the institutions themselves are mirroring their clients mm. in that they are financially uh, strapped. Uh, they, you know, live pay roll to payroll, just like the the individuals that they serve live paycheck to paycheck. And one event can really undermine them. And and we've seen nonprofits go under. Twenty um, percent are actually of human service organizations are insolvent, um, and I would say another forty to fifty percent uh, really don't have. Uh, reserves of more than three months uh, oh, wow, on the goodness. books. And so it's they are in a very cash-strapped uh, situation, and it's because of the way government contracts with them, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in a pretty good economic climate. I mm-hmm. think about 4.2% unemployment here in New York City. On the other hand, we know the great divisions that are going on and how many people are being left behind. What would you say about the demand on these agencies right now? Is it about the same as it's always been, more or less? I would def- definitely say it's more significant. Mm. I mean, there's no question that money is being funneled up to the more wealthy. I mean, there's lots of you know in- evidence of that. And so it is being, it's harder and harder to make it, which means that people rely more and more on these services. And government, I think, you know, in New York City really wants to buy more of these services. And I think that that's great. And that's a great trend. But they need to pay for the full cost of it. Well, speak a little bit about that. You're saying that these agencies, when they contract for these services, are underfunded by the government. How large is that? And why is that happening? Yeah. So, you know, on average, they only pay 80 cents of the actual cost of the services. Um why it happens, I mean, nonprofits are community-based institutions. They have missions, and, and there's no one else that's really going to bring their services to scale. And so when they see a government contract, they evaluate it, and they determine whether or not they can afford to take that contract. And essentially, they have to fundraise privately to in order to take that contract. Oh, that's difficult. Yes. And so they have to throw parties. They have to you know, have boards that have a lot of money that can make contributions. They have to go to private philanthropy. Uh, go to banks, you know, go to different places to try to raise the money to, in order to take that government contract and do that work in the community. And so um, that, unfortunately, makes it a very difficult operational uh, challenge for m- many of the nonprofits operating in the city. Are, is the government failing to pay the cost for the program? Is that part of it? Or are they failing to pay all the indirect costs and Both. the overhead that are part <laughs> of it? So it's a co- combination Both, yeah. of the two. Mm-hmm. So, so um, the government pays – about, again, about 80 cents of the actual cost. The program funds are not sufficient. Um, and at the same time, government has traditionally not recognized the indirect costs and the importance of that. And indirect costs really pay for the institution to exist. It, it pays for, for research. It pays for the HR department. It pays for management. You know, it pays to make sure that the nonprofit is operating efficiently. Um, and But I will say, and I give a lot of credit to the de Blasio administration and the speaker of uh, Corey Johnson, mm-hmm. uh, in the last budget that was uh, agreed to in June, they, and you know, this has a lot to do with our advocacy, they did finally agree that they are going to pay the indirect rates and what they really are for individual institutions in the city of New York. And so that is a huge step forward. Um, We do not have that same commitment from the state. I would say Governor Cuomo has largely ignored this sector in terms of his investment in it. We've and and that there needs to be that same change that we've seen uh, at the city level happen at the state level. Yeah, congratulations! That is real huge. It's game changing. Yeah. You know, speaking about this eighty percent rate, when the city contracts with a business. Do uh-huh. they pay that same 80% rate or do they pay the full freight? No, they pay the full freight for the most part. I mean, I think that the the situation is that nonprofits don't really have any other buyers of these services, right? It's really a one market. The the government is the only one that's buying homeless shelters. No mm-hmm. one else is buying them. Um, no one else is really, you know, buying the substance abuse services in the same way. You know, there's only so many private buyers of those kinds of, of services. So um, I think that that's part of the problem is that it's really a one market um, buyer. And so the nonprofits, if they want to do services to scale, again, we're talking, like I said earlier, $6 billion the city spends on that. The philanthropic dollars just can't make up that difference um, in terms of scale. Mm -hmm. And I think it probably 
hurts in in a, in a way that they're so mission oriented that Correct. they care so deeply right. about the people that they're that serving. They put their own well being. They put a, their own aside. Well, they, we'll yes. figure it out later, right? Because exactly. these people really need our help. Are more of them beginning to stand up and saying no mas? Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, and I like to think I had something to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a hunch you did. <laughs> um, because you know, I've been really through our work at the Human Services Council. We've been pointing out the risks that nonprofits um, take on when they when they take on these contracts and. We've been trying to get boards of directors to pay more attention and to and to ensure that the nonprofits are thinking about the operational challenges because they are real and to and to say no to contracts that are are not paying the full cost because frankly it's hard to advocate on behalf of institutions that keep raising their hand for contracts that are underpaid right um, but I will say that I've seen a number of nonprofits really scale back and think about which contracts they're going to say yes to they have def I, I know that there's many that have said turned back contracts and not put their hat in the ring for different RFPs that have come to the street, um, which is not a good sign for government in terms of you know having a lot of people compete for these contracts. Mm-hmm. There, there, there is the argument that you know somebody will pick it up, but like you don't want just somebody to pick up the contract. You want a quality, good yeah. provider mm-hmm. to do the work on behalf of the city, not just somebody who's willing to do it. You know, a corollary of this would be the speed of reimbursements because when yes. a nonprofit goes about and provides the work, provides the services, yeah. Yeah. they probably expect to then go to the mailbox and see a check there. Yeah, it doesn't work that doesn't way. doesn't work that way. Uh, what the, how well, does it work? I mean, unfortunately, it's sort of like, let me underpay you and then let me wait nine months to give you that underpayment. So <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. Um, so, the, yeah, the nonprofits are, are routinely um, paid you know, nine months to a year sometimes late on the on the work, and they have to provide the service. They can't not begin the work because oftentimes they're already doing the work, have the employees, yeah. and so a lot of these um, requests for proposals are just an a, you know continuing that work, right? So you may you have a child care center, your contract's going to end, and then the government puts out a new request for proposals, so you bid for it, hoping that you'll get it, and then you will continue with the employees you already have in place. So if the government takes forever to actually make an uh, officially may say yes to that contract for you the new one and then get it through the process you're continuing to pay those employees and continuing to deliver those services without having the actual money in hand which forces you to go to the bank take out loans and then that increases your costs further because you have to pay interest on that that's right so what's the problem with the city? I mean, why are they taking nine months? Is there a procurement process that's there all is. messed there, up with no timelines? Yeah, or what, there, what's going on? There are no timelines for the. There are no official timelines. Only the comptroller has a thirty-day um, deadline to to actually approve contracts. We have there actually is legislation proposed by um, Councilmember Helen Rosenthal and by Councilmember Ben Kalos that would create timelines, which we're supportive of. Um, and I will again give credit to at the mayor's office of contract services. They are. Com- Coming up with a system that will create transparency mm-hmm. in the process, which I think will help tremendously, but it is not yet implemented. Uh, and so once it's implemented, I expect things to get better, but you know, we'll see. And it's transparency is not the same as a deadline. Yes, that's right. That's right. You, you can see clearly right. that they're nine months late. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know who to blame maybe more readily, right? Yeah. So speak a little bit more about the impact of all this, both the underfunding and the late payments and Mm -hmm. the kind of stress that it puts on the organization, the people who work there, and the people that are being served. Yeah, unfortunately, the nonprofits have been hobbling along in this environment for a long time, and they have had to make very difficult decisions in order to survive. And that comes out, look, their biggest costs are the costs of their employees. Those Mm -hmm. are the people that, you know, you're essentially buying – services that are provided by people. So they're a huge employer. 80% of the workforce is women. Mm-hmm. Uh, a huge percentage are, are, are people of color and yeah, women 70, of color. 70, 75% are exactly. tremendous amount. And we underpay them. Um, the, the health benefits have gone down. The, uh, you will be hard-pressed to find anyone that has a pension or any kind of investment in retirement. So I think that's a real problem that's the you know, can't be kicked down the road. Increasingly, these nonprofits are needing themselves social services to make ends meet for their families. Um, and really, I, I do think that there's a point in which 
government needs to recognize the impact on the workforce, but also nonprofits need to evaluate their contracts and say, we're not willing to be a poverty employer. Um, So I would point fingers in both directions on this. I do think that there's a point that nonprofits have to say, we are absolutely not willing to... um, to employ people at this level. Um, and what happens is you end up with huge turnover rates, yeah, right? I, would, I can imagine. And, and the thing is, if you have turnover rates, you, you know, we're not making genes at these institutions, right? It's it, The turnover has real consequences. You're talking about people working in the in the child welfare field. Just think there's like a 30% turnover rate. Those are people that are foster children, right, who have been separated from their families and people trying to work one-on-one with those individual kids. Could you imagine if you, ha- you finally get the trust built and then your caseworker leaves and you have to start your story over, it's like re-traumatizing people. It is so counterproductive. It is is disheartening and, and hurtful. And I think same thing for homeless providers. I mean, there's just too much turnover within the institutions. And another thing that's happening, frankly, is because of the this this these this funding problem, a lot of nonprofits have vacancies for long periods of time, hmm. which means that the workers that have remained are only working that much harder and having, you know, getting more burnt out. And what I'm seeing, frankly, is that a lot of those nonprofits are relying on those vacancies to make their books closed and balanced, which is a terrible, terrible trend. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, that population is the worst population to do this to. Yeah. Somebody who has just been – finally have built some trusts and then to have them say, here we we go again. And I will will say it's very – it's really problematic for me. I look at the, at the governor's level, the Cuomo, and yeah. he has talked so much publicly about the imbalance of you know pay equity for women versus men and how he's doing all this stuff. Yet he controls the salaries of a workforce that's 80% women, mm. and he has refused to give a cost of living adjustment, which is like 2 3% 2%, increase yeah. on a you know salary of like $30,000, $40,000. Um, he's refused to do it year after year and actually saved that money for the state. Um, I mean, we've seen a, a $5 billion reduction in in what the state has paid for human services oh, since he's been in office. I yeah. mean, it is insane how he talks publicly on the one hand about this pay disparity between women and, and men and how he's going to do something about it. And yet time after time does not take do anything about it when he has the opportunity. If he could just address the work, the the cost of living adjustment as a small measure, but he doesn't doesn't take that opportunity. And as you know, Allison, in the workforce these days, people are looking for personal development and personal growth. Correct. So they're not even dealing with these very basic issues. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that these workers, that is the farthest thing from their mind and their organizations in terms of how do I grow my skills. Right. They're just trying to make it through every single day. Yeah, and they end up going to places like Starbucks, like to, to get other jobs. And that's not where we want, you know, people who are caring want to care for people. We want to support them. You touched on this a moment ago, but I had the CEO of the Open Road Alliance on the program recently, and she mentioned that there is one four-letter word in the nonprofit sector that we never talk about, and that is risk. (laughs) Uh, Speak about risk management uh, among your member organizations, why it is so important, and also why do so many people stick their head in the sand and shy away from it? Yeah. I mean, I'm... I'm, feel like that has is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we had something to do with it. So risk is something that nonprofits absolutely need to pay attention to. Um, the government contracts that they sign up for are extremely risky in a lot of different ways, financially, operationally. Uh, there's just a lot of different levels of you know who, uh, who controls the actual clients coming to you, uh, the intake. There's a lot of different ways in which the, the, the contracts are risky. I absolutely am a big proponent of nonprofits having their eyes wide open to what they're signing up for. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually created a tool called the RFP Raider. Great um, tool. <laughs> yeah, it's a great tool. Um, it's been in place about three years now where we actually take government contracts, we rate them for risks, um, and we put that information out publicly so that the nonprofits can be aware of the risks and that nonprofit boards are aware of the risks and that uh, the government's is basically held accountable to the risks that they're putting on the nonprofits as well. And I will say we've been successful in a couple of the RFPs that we've put we've rated. Government has actually pulled back and made adjustments to the contracts, which is a huge advocacy tool. Um, And I'm, I'm really happy about that. But I would just say every nonprofit should not only be thinking about the risks themselves, but they should be talking about the risks with their boards of directors. Mm. That to me is, and boards of directors need to be asking questions about risk. Yeah. They do not ask the hard questions, board of directors. Yep. 
Uh, I, I mean, they're responsible fiscally for those institutions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think sometimes they they get that sense. And uh, we were just talking the other day about boards and how they never come to an organization as a team. Yeah. They kind of come as an individual who's got a concern. Maybe they'll make a gift. But the idea of having them come together as a team and ask hard questions of the management, yep. um, not in a, in, a, in a belittling way, but to really, really ask those questions for the future success of the organization exactly. and so stability. That, yeah, exactly. It, it, so they can understand what the risks are and what the opportunities are and, and help move the organization forward and onto solid footing. Mm-hmm. I've noticed uh, over the last few years the Human Services Council has become more assertive in advocacy. Yes. You've really stepped up those <laughs> efforts. What prompted that decision and what are you advocating for at the moment? I think there's been a real recognition and frustration on on the uh, providers uh, side of things that we are not getting what we need from government. Um, mm-hmm. We've we've seen a lot of nonprofits go down. Um, you know, when one of the largest institution FEGS, w- went down almost overnight and went into bankruptcy, I think that really scared a lot of the the institutions. And they said, "Well, how did that happen?" Because I think before that, there was this sense that if you were small, that could happen, but if you were large, it could not. And it, that's not the issue. The issue is the margins. And yeah, actually, margins, if you're yeah. really large, mm-hmm. the, the if you're talking about eighty cents on the dollar, that you're the amount you have to fundraise is even bigger. So you have even more to pay attention to in terms of your private sector funds and how you run your operations. So there has been a real recognition as nonprofit institutions have have been closing, there's been a lot more mergers, um, that that our advocacy needs to to step up if we are to make sure that government is treating us right. And so, you know, I'm happy that we've been leading campaigns to really push for what the sector needs and to importantly connect it back to the outcomes in communities because that's what it's about. It's not about the institutions. Right. You know, who cares? If FEGS existed, somebody else picks up the work. It's not about the institution. That's a great point. It's really about the people. And if we don't have strong institutions doing the work, we do, will not have good outcomes for kids, for seniors, Etc. Too many institutions talk about the institutions and mm-hmm. not enough about the people right. that they're serving, and they would be better served if they did that in the communities. You've also uh, crowdsourced feedback, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the nonprofits, you know, are, are seen as vendors of the government. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we kind of did this almost like Yelp kind of approach where we a- asked the nonprofits to rate almost as like customers of government, right? Like what was what is your experience when you work with government? Are you getting pay- you know do you feel like that they're treating you well when you get paid when you have questions about your payments or where your where your contract is in this, you know, crazy process or um, if you want to come back to the table and negotiate an element of your contract? Like do you feel like they're working with you more as a partner or are they treating you more like a vendor? And so we give government grades. We mm-hmm. ask the nonprofits to grade the, each institu- each of the city agencies that they have contracts with. And then we give the agency a grade and put out a public report card, um, which is, you know, it's interesting. There hasn't really been any Fs or As, mm-hmm. It's but it's really been in the, like, C range, which yeah. isn't great, right? No, no. Um, it's not – and and so there is a lot of work to be done on, in terms of the the government agencies and how they partner with and and work with the nonprofits. But it's interesting because city agencies like the staff they've they've told us straight up that they want to get an A. So good. like and, and asked us like what do we need to do to get an A? And so that's good. They're paying attention and it's working. Yeah. Well, when your son starts bringing home his report card and has a C on it, you're not going to be particularly happy, <laughs> Correct. are you? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you won't panic. But you, you will, there'll be no dessert as you. You know, Allison, it's estimated about 50 percent of health health outcomes uh, depend upon social determinants of health. Yep. So your organization has issued a report about integrating health and human services, a blueprint for partnership and action. What were some of the key recommendations and where does that stand? Yeah, so I think that was our opportunity also to talk about what I've talked about today, that the to connect the healthcare industry with the human services in- industry is, I think, good in terms of the idea of it. But you're talking about a well-funded, very powerful industry, the healthcare industry, mm-hmm. going to an industry that's you know hobbling along because of their finances. So the recommendations really focused on the investments that need to be made in the human services side, and also again highlighting some of the risks that the nonprofits have to be aware of when they when they're contracting and thinking about uh, the the connecting with the health. Healthcare sector. It's things like create um, IPAs for that for human services, um, so that they're able to 
collect their services, kind of like the uh, individual doctors have, yep. so they can connect to the, the managed care organizations and the hospitals. Um, it's things like invest in the technology needs of the nonprofits. You know, they, they cannot easily transfer data between a hospital system based on what they have in place now. Um, so those are the kinds of recommendations that we, we put forward. And, you know, for me, I love the idea in theory of these things connecting. And I think we are make, doing some real evolution in our in our state around this. And I give credit to the Department of Health at the state level in pushing these things forward. But they haven't focused enough on the CBO needs, mm-hmm. and they need to make more investments there. Um, and for me, it's it's another market that the nonprofits could be connecting to. Um, however, I don't want the nonprofits to make the same mistakes they've made with government and take 80 cents on the dollar and take big risks. They need to really understand what their full costs are when they're agreeing to do health services. And it's not so easy for them to do the innovative thinking that's required when, they, when they're going to come forward with an idea to the hospital or, or to the you know, managed care organization about how their services would actually impact health in a, in a way that actually they can show data on in a yeah. short period of time. Right, right. Well, getting back to indirect costs, it's good to see that IT is moving from being considered overhead right. to being part of program and strategy and getting out of that column, which is allowing these organizations to invest. Right. Let me ask you about disasters. Do you do anything – with yeah. your agencies in the event of a disaster to have them prepared? Yeah. So, look, the Human Service Council is an association of providers, right? And we think about risks for those institutions. When a disaster happens, like Sandy, yeah. um, which is, I think, just seven years ago, mm-hmm. um, we, ha- we have to shift as an institution because we can't be doing advocacy for cost of living adjustments or, or, or indirect rates in that moment. Government is not paying attention to that. Government is focusing on the major disaster and, and trying to fix it, right? And trying to help communities recover. So we are really trying to figure out how to make sure that we connect our members to government effectively in those moments so that government can leverage the relationships and the work that is being done in communities every day. The nonprofits that are doing child care today, if their community gets hit by a disaster, they're going to be doing other types of work. And so but but it's there's no guarantee that they'll be funded for that kind yeah, of work, yeah. right? And so we're trying to figure out how can the contract shift in order to, that they might have for child care with the you know the Department of Education, for example. Can it shift and and can some of those dollars be help support the shift in those employees' work at that time related to a disaster? Um, we we have a thing called Human Services Alert, which is actually designed for. Uh, nonprofit managers so that we can give them information uh, and we are sourcing it from the places like the Red Cross, mm-hmm. um, the Salvation Army, government, um, et cetera, philanthropy, to give that information to the, the nonprofits so that when they're making decisions about what they should do, what risks they should take, because you're taking a risk when you're deciding to do something different in a disaster and you don't know where the money's coming from, yep. that you have as much information about what other people related to the disaster are doing in that moment and can make more educated uh, decisions about what you might do. Oh, that's great. It's so important to have those things pre-baked. Exactly. Because when a disaster comes, no one's going to be talking to anybody. I mean, Every, the, you the just chaos, have to swing into action. Exactly. And the chaos is inevitable, but you can have a little bit con- more controlled chaos when you do preparedness. Let me close with this, Allison. If you were mayor for a day, uh-huh. or maybe you prefer to be governor for a day, uh-huh. <laughs> and could implement one thing that would have the greatest positive impact on the members of the Human Services Council and the individuals and the communities they serve, what would that be? I would make sure that the that there's a, a transparency and in the cost structures that are put out in RFPs. Mm-hmm. That there is a clear explanation as to why we came up with certain costs um, and why the government has priced the service at the price that it's at so that we could actually close that gap between the 80% and the full cost of services. Just talking to one another, a narrative that we could understand exactly, <laughs> would make exactly. a big difference. Well, Allison Sesso, the Executive Director of the Human Services Council, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. If there was an action that listeners could take that would help with some of the challenges that so many of these agencies are now dealing with, what action would you like to see them take? I think people should think about what institutions are operating in their communities and to Get involved to think about being on the board of directors, mm-hmm. making contributions to those organizations, and to frankly talking to their city council members about the value that those institutions bring. Great. Well, thanks, Allison. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'll be back with more of the business of giving right after this. 
Recruit the best talent. Explore the untapped pool of 24 million productive Americans with disabilities. The National Organization on Disability is the leading partner to help companies succeed in disability employment. Learn more at NOD.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at BizOfGive and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. It can be exceptionally difficult to navigate the maze of social services in New York City. You go to one place for health care, another for free legal advice, and still another if you are seeking mental health counseling. But what if all of these and many, many more services and programs were available to young people all under one roof. What would the impact of that be on their lives? We're going to find out from my next guest. He is Eric Weingartner, the Chief Executive Officer of The Door and University Settlement. Good evening, Eric, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Denver, good evening. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. So although I introduce you as the CEO of The Door and University Settlement, there's a third entity that's involved in your portfolio, and that's the Broom Street Academy. Tell us how these three entities are all connected. So the University Settlement is the oldest settlement house in the country, formed in the late 19th century, and in 2000, uh, the university settlement and the door became affiliated when mm-hmm. the door was strategically in a tough spot, uh, not particularly well funded and not particularly well managed. And they're affiliated organizations that share an administrative back office. Programmatically, though, independent 501c3s, mm-hmm. independent not-for-profits that programmatically function as unique standalone entities. Broom Street Academy is the door's charter high school. Ah. And so Broom Street is a charter high school serves kids 9 through 12, and is ironically or is uniquely the only charter high school in New York State that is strategically positioned to take in kids that have a background in either foster care or homeless. Hmm. So 50% of the uh, students in our high school have that background. Um, And also uniquely, Broom Street is located within the door. Yeah. Um, and the purpose of it is that, and I guess we'll talk about today, the door is a very broad human services organization exclusively dedicated to kids that are 12 to 24. And so all of the programming that is within the door is embedded into the day to day of the kids at Broom Street. So interesting. Um, let's speak a little bit more about that because you have a nationally recognized, one of a kind, integrated model serving 11,000 kids. Tell us how this model works. So it's an anomaly. Um, You know, government and private philanthropy do everything they can, I don't think purposely, to essentially assure that a not-for-profit like The Door cannot emerge, Mm. right? Because most not-for-profits in New York find themselves as being particularly good at one or two things. That's right. With a few ancillary programs that support a main intervention, health care, legal services, foster care, housing. Um, In the early 1970s, a group of volunteers thought about the idea of a holistic integrated um, intervention whereby multiple programs, multiple services would be available to at-risk young adults. And over time, that scaled into being the door. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the sort of the central conditions to the door is that we are located and operate in a big space. So we are uh, situated on the corner of Broom Street and 6th Avenue in Soho, Yep, as unlikely a place for a poverty-fighting juggernaut as you could find. For sure. Um, we do not identify as being a community-based organization. We're a citywide organization that draws 11,000 kids a year to this central place in Manhattan – almost equally distributed between Brooklyn, Manhattan, the Bronx, with a little bit of less representation from Queens and Staten Island. But fundamentally, the door is seven or eight deep programmatic interventions, all integrated into one not-for-profit. And so it's a deep, deep dive into healthcare, Mm -hmm. which includes primary care, mental health care, and a big emphasis on family planning, reproductive health care, sexual health a deep dive into training kids for jobs through job placement, internships, and preparation for college. At this point now, we have 18 attorneys doing civil law with an emphasis on immigration. 
Um, we feed kids all day long with a food program that runs from breakfast through dinner mm-hmm. every night. Any kid at the door and our staff eat for free. Nutrition-wise. As, as part of yeah. our model. Yeah. Um, we're the drop-in provider for homeless kids in New, York City, in New York City. So the city has designated the door as the drop-in site for vulnerably housed kids or homeless kids. And of the 11,000 kids we see a year, almost 25% of them are either homeless or vulnerably housed. Goodness. Yeah, and they can take a shower there. They can do their laundry there. Yeah, Some of so we, yeah we can, we can things, dive yeah. into the depth of all yeah. these. Um, and then categorically, what else am I missing? Oh, we, we have a massive arts program that runs all year and all summer, which is part of the glue that attracts kids to come to us, sports, recreation. And we just opened a brand-new gymnasium. Um, and the, the, the presumption is is that of the 30 to 50 new kids that become members of the door every day, mm-hmm. they do an assessment. They tell us why they're there. Yep. And they're there for so many different reasons. But fundamentally, the secret sauce is that 75% of the kids that come to the door use four or more services while they're with us. And they come for very different reasons. So if you were a fly in the wall in our intake system and we were going to look at the case of three kids that were becoming members of the door today, you could have a young woman who's there because she's in a sexual relationship with her partner and is there for birth control. Mm -hmm. And next to her is a young man who's fearing being deported, who's from Guatemala, who is in desperate need of an attorney to help figure out benefits and figure out status and figure out if they can stay in this country, go to college or go to high school or access health care. Next to that kid could be a kid who is a college student who needs a job, and we're going to put them into a training and get them connected to a job, to a kid next to that kid who is street homeless, most likely has an acute mental illness, potentially a substance abuse issue, who needs a real deep intervention and is incredibly unstable. So you have this very unique cocktail of 11,000 kids who coexist in a very unique space But fundamentally, if we're doing our job right and the youth development principles that sort of are the fabric of the door, we can make sure that almost any kid that comes to the door can get everything they need to stabilize and advance within our system. Mm -hmm. And it's a very unique condition because fundamentally, the not-for-profit world is set up to – put young adults, put adults, put families into a position to get a service Mm -hmm. and get a referral to do the other things they need. And what poverty folks understand well, public policy folks understand well, is that families that are at risk, young adults that are at risk, rarely have one thing going on. That's right. And that there's this – They're linked together. There's this cocktail of, in in using a health word, a comorbidity, Mm -hmm. where it's never just unemployment and depression. And if it is unemployment and depression, the DOORS model essentially props up this question. If I put behavioral health services and employment services in the same building, will I get a better outcome on both if they're operated together? Mm -hmm. And behavioral scientists will also tell you that friction is a big thing that stops people from getting the help that they need. So if you go to one place and you're being helped and they refer to you another, yeah. it's a production very often. Yeah. You've got to get on a subway. You've got to find out how it all works. And that can have such a fallout rate right at, at there. You know, from just listening to you, Eric, too, I get a sense that a lot of these young people might come because they're lonely. I mean, there's a... You know, there's a community there. Even you, though you're not a community-based center, there's a sense that there's there's a community. There's a huge piece of what the door's about that I didn't even mention in our initial sort of rundown of services that um, kids come to the door to hang out all the time. Yeah. And we're particularly welcoming to communities that find themselves marginalized. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost 20% of the kids that come to the door, which is a big number, 2,000, 3,000, identify as LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Um, there are tons of kids that come to us who need recreation yeah. and want movie night and homework help and a place to have dinner with peers with like-minded folks. They're connected. Um, and, you know, folks ask me all the time, if I had my druthers, would I move the door into one of the boroughs into an area with a higher concentration of poverty? And the door actually has a pretty immediate plan to expand, and we're looking to, in effect, double our 
platform by um, opening a second door in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. But right now, I'm pretty pleased that we're actually in Manhattan because there is something about leaving your neighborhood, going to the city, and taking on something serious in Soho, which is really a a nice oasis for kids. And every night we're open till 8 or 9. We walk kids to the train. We get them on the train to get them home. That's good. But from 7 in the morning till 9 at night, we're like a mini city. Mm -hmm. There are eight, 900 kids in our building for everything from high school equivalency to job training to have dinner to take a yoga class to see their doctor to see their therapist to meet with their lawyer it is a it functions like a little metropolis yeah, and behavior scientists will also say that we think that it's the individual characteristics of a person that determine their decisions and their actions whereas it's only about 30%, 70% is your environment. Yeah. And when you change the environment, you can change an awful lot of things. And being where you are yeah. changes that environment and gets them to think differently and go to a different place of their brain. Yeah. You also have uh, early childhood and mental health services there. Speak a little bit about those. So um, each, of the, each of the individual platforms within the door sort of stand alone almost like a unique not-for-profit. Mm-hmm. So on the mental health side, we have about 1,200 kids engaged in clinical mental health services. There are two places at the door where we are out of capacity. One is on mental health and one is on legal. Mm -hmm. I could double both departments and still have more kids left. So we have about 1,200 kids that are in clinical services now. And it's not just low-grade the blues. I Mm -hmm. mean, there's some deep trauma, real deep mental illness, schizophrenia, bipolar, real post-traumatic stress and trauma that's dominating a lot of the experiences of kids that are with us. Um, And it's probably the most untreated condition of anything that I see of the 11,000 kids that come to the door in a year. And if I had a magic wand and a new pot of money, it would be the place that I'd expand Mm -hmm. first. and so that's just and – and I don't think that's unique to the door. Um, I actually don't think it's unique to young adults. I think it's probably the most untreated condition in New York. And Everywhere, dep- I would say. And depending on culture and ethnicity well, and background, there's still a reluctance to uptake um, mental health. There's still a stigma around it. <laughs> there's still a stigma. Mm-hmm. And the differential between treating it and getting kids back on a track to be able to thrive academically or in a workforce environment is massive. And we see it all the time, that it is the differential. You know, this is such an interesting place. Uh, Eric, describe the vibe of it, what it sounds like, uh, what it looks like, what it feels like when someone walks through that door. Denver, I spend an inordinate amount of time trying to turn people on to the door. Mm -hmm. And I invariably just don't take no for an answer when somebody says, just tell tell me about it on the phone. (laughs) It's one of these places where you have to come visit. I bet. Because it's not eight cubicles in a waiting room. Mm -hmm. It's 75,000 feet in a gray, uninspired building on the outside. But when you walk in, it's incredibly vibrant. Uh, There's art everywhere. There are kids teeming through the place. Half the time, I can't tell if uh, a staffer is a participant or a staffer (laughs) because nobody's wearing a suit except for me when I have a a real meeting. And um, it's seven floors of – Vibrancy, And so you're walking past the cafeteria, into the art studio, into the dance studio, up to the employment lab, past the law firm. Uh, our, our high school is essentially two floors of the building. And when you get to the fourth floor and walk into Broom Street Academy, you forget that five seconds earlier you were in a clinic that looked like a doctor's office. And now you're in a high school with lockers and big posters and drama club and debate club. Mm-hmm. And so – it is a little bit like a department store, yeah. and when you walk through and you listen, this is mental health, this is legal, this is our high school, this is our clinic, you start to really understand that there is something visceral about the door mm. in that you see this interconnectivity of programming and can understand that it's not just this database that sits behind the walls that shows that kids are connected to different activities. There is a community mm-hmm. uh, within this building where kids feel happy. Yeah. I mean, there are a decent number of kids that come to the door whose lives are in real crisis. Yeah. There's a lot of sadness behind their life experience. But when you get to the door, 
the place is upbeat. Mm-hmm. And it is not – there is not a depressive vibe that runs through the place. It is upbeat. There's music playing. We have activities all through the year and all day that are celebrating the kids that we have. And everything is about being progressive. Yeah. Everything is about moving kids forward from – we're the float in the gay pride parade that wins mm-hmm. the dance contest every year to our Halloween party to the prom that we have for um, for our high school. Everything is about a celebration. Mm-hmm. Everything is about moving forward. And it's about finding what it will take for every kid that's in that building to thrive in the way that they need to thrive. Yeah, and I think to your point about happiness, I've always looked at happiness not in terms of your current state but in the direction you're heading in, whether it's gotten better or if it's gotten worse. So even if they have some really challenging times, they know by being at the door, it's getting better. Yes. And that that instills some happiness as opposed to the – the other way around. Um, what are some of the challenges? We know that Denver, dividends. Can, Denver, can I say sure. that at, at the root of that is our staff? Yeah. Um, our staff are excellent. And um, the funding constraints about who we are, everyone at the door should get a big raise. <laughs> um, and But fundamentally, the door is this place where if you care about this work, if you're interested in youth development and advancing the lives of at-risk young adults, the door is really the crown jewel of where you want to come work. Mm -hmm. So we rarely find ourselves struggling to attract talent. Um, And the, the folks that drive these programs, our workforce programs, the woman who runs our legal services division, every one of them to a one is an industry superstar. Mm -hmm. And for me, it is just – it is the privilege to be their colleague. And their teams are remarkable. Yeah. You just try to get the obstacles out of their way so they can do what without they question, were born they, to put Without do. question, they would say, Eric, just get out of our <laughs> get way. Yeah. Or get our problems or, or, out of or our maybe way. Maybe they'd say, go raise me some more money. Yeah. Um, so let's it, continue with that. Let me ask yeah. you a little bit about the corporate culture yeah. and what you try to do to, to, to shape it and influence it to make it such a special place in which to work. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm newish to it. Uh, you know, I uh, – in the beginning of December, I'll turn 50. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, at a college, Happy I was birthday. Thank you. That's a big one. Well, I guess it's a big one. Yeah. Uh, at a college, I did Teach for America, and then worked for Teach for America for a short period of time. But since my mid twenties, I've been essentially a not-for-profit staffer. Worked in City Hall twice under Mayor Giuliani and Mayor Bloomberg, and then spent almost a decade at Robin Hood. And so I came to this big administrative role in my mid forties. And the culture was something I had to get used to. Um, and But fundamentally, at the door in particular, um, it, is, um, it is an intense life because there are a lot of kids in our building. We have a mosaic of contracts that put tons of pressure on us to be able to meet the numbers of the folks we need to serve, in some cases meet pretty rigorous outcomes with a very difficult population. And so you have these two colliding um, forces, I think, driving the door. One is you have this general feeling that we need to run a youth development-appropriate, upbeat very intense uh, set of services that are meeting kids effectively. And on the other side, you have staff working very in a, in a more traditional professional environment trying to be great business people, mm-hmm. great program people at the same time, all balanced against an infrastructure that's pretty lean. So it is – it never feels anything but intense and it's the right makeup of somebody to be able to thrive at the door for a longer period of time. Our our line staff tend to be very young. Mm-hmm. Um, our managers are more seasoned, which is not to say that they're old, but they're more seasoned. And thank God they're there because they have big industry knowledge and can really be mentors to staff who really have – this is not a you, – you can't coast at the door. Every day is pretty intense. I think kids will make it that way. Young people just make it that way. They're there. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about your business model. I know that there's a lot of government funding involved, and I also know that you place a premium on the ability to raise private philanthropic dollars. Talk about that and how you see those two things working together. So on, on, on a macro sense, I would say, and I say this having been a government person and a philanthropy person, I would say that the not-for-profit system in general is broken. Yeah. Um, I think that the government and to some extent philanthropy 
philanthropy put an unrealistic burden on not-for-profits to do Herculean work on budgets and contract sizes that are inadequate. Sure. And so and restrictions as well. And restrictions what they and, can do. And just just arcane qualifications and, and and requirements about how we use money and how we report money, almost in a way that it, it inherently assumes fraud. Yes. Which offends me to my core. Right. Um, they assume the worst intentions. Yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 almost like we're assumed to be criminals, <laughs> uh, even though we are fundamentally a division of the city, yeah. right? No different than the police department. The door takes government money, state, city, federal, and we put it to work uh, on the behalf of at-risk kids, and it, it's presumed that we are going to mismanage that money, which, which to my core offends me. Um, I think there's a little bit more trust uh, on the philanthropy side. Mm-hmm. Um, but fundamentally, we are a $36 million operation. About 65 to 68 percent of that cash is government cash. The rest is private money, which takes the largest form of foundation money, uh, then corporate money, and then individual giving. Uh, I spend the lion's share of my time trying to do better for the door. Uh, and Broom Street on the private side because the general operating support money that is unrestricted is what I need more than anything so that I'm not just running good programs, but I actually have a computer. I have a CFO. I have an elevator contract. You have a strong I have, organization. I have an infrastructure, infrastructure that right. lets me run. Yeah. And, and do all these other things. And I, I essentially chase down infrastructure health all day long. Mm-hmm. And we're we're increasing, increasingly blessed to have a board that is dynamic. Um, I sort of feel like it's my job to be the door's cheerleader, to introduce to New York City heroes the door, because by and large the city understands that business and philanthropy should come together. Mm-hmm. And so I'm constantly on the lookout for people who understand how unique the door is and want to be part of bringing magic to what happens on Broom Street. As you mentioned a moment ago, Eric, you were at the Robin Hood Foundation, so you know all about measuring impact, and so few nonprofits are confident about that. I think three-quarters of them have said they don't know how to go about it. So share with us how to go about it and how you measure impact at the door. So I don't – I think that having been at Robin Hood um, and to some extent having been at the city before being in this job was – a super training ground. Mm-hmm. I actually don't think about impact any differently now than I did when I was at Robin Hood. Yeah. And so Robin Hood, I think, is exceptional. Uh, I left there as in love with the places I did when I got there. Um, the guy who runs at Westmore is superb. And the staff that work there are also superb. And what Robin Hood always got right was that we'll give you a big, a big check. We'll give you a lot of dough. But we're going to ask for all the questions. We're going to ask you all the questions that will tell us whether or not two things are happening: one, programmatic impact is clear, mm-hmm. and two, whether or not the infrastructure of your not-for-profit is clear. And those two basic buckets of questions is how I think about whether or not the door is healthy. And so, whether or not a funder asks me or not. I care about whether or not I'm able to prove that if I allocate $100,000 to mental health, I want to be able to know what is the tangible result of that $100,000 being put to work. And it could be in the, in, the, in the measurement of whether or not a pre- or post-test shows an improvement in mental health. It could be in the jobs case about whether or not someone finished a training, got a job, stayed in that job for mm-hmm. a period of time, had some wage change. But I don't wait around for government or philanthropy to ask me about whether or not I got a bang for my buck. <laughs> uh, a good not-for-profit wants to do that any in every case. To get better. I don't want to spend $100,000 on anything in the sense I think it has an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the core of how I manage and how the team at the door thinks about programming, we do that whether or not government or philanthropy asks us for that. The flip side is when government or philanthropy asks us to document questions that we don't think are the central ones. Mm-hmm. And then we have to just make a decision on our own whether or not we want that money or not. Because if we're going to get a big check, 500 k to do something important in the legal services realm, if we're not being asked to produce the outcomes that we think are really the central ones, we just won't take the contract. Right. You don't want to chase them. Yeah. So we don't, we, we don't take on programs that we don't think are core to our values 
or quarter how we think about uh, measurement. Um, but by and large, uh, we need the money, yeah. so we try to make it work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the private money is easier than the government money. Um, do you believe, Eric, you know, beyond what you said before about maybe opening another facility up in the Bronx, that this model is replicable and scalable across the nonprofit world, knowing how nonprofits work, funders work, government work, that it could be taken across the country and in different places as a way to really address poverty and, and challenges that these young people face. I fundamentally do. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was explaining to my father why I was leaving Robin Hood, and his general question was, have you lost your mind? Um, in part, the draw of the door was that um, – He's a brain scientist, so he can, he's he, can a brain a, scientist. he can ask that question. He is a brain scientist. Uh, fundamentally, the 65 percent of the dough that drives the door, the, that public money, isn't unique to New York, mm-hmm. right? And so if we picked 10 cities that have the same fundamental issues that New York City does of at-risk young adults who need health care, who need jobs, who need access to high school remediation, uh, who need legal services. Um, By and large, that money and that condition of funding is present in most American cities. And so then the question becomes, if you aggregate programming and you do it in a way that where youth development strings through um, a set of contracts under different uh, under different types of services. Could you actually get better outcomes for kids if you centralize that programming? And my inherent guess is yes. And so you don't need the door in New York City to go to Los Angeles mm-hmm. or go to Houston, Texas, and actually start a new door. Though that's something that maybe we would consider. Someday, sure. But a smart social services entrepreneur or a smart city hall person can and should create the condition where there are destinations for young adults where it's not just a one-trick pony. And that's super important. And if you look at the best not-for-profits in New York City and my peers, places like Good Shepherd or Children's Aid Society or Dream Mm -hmm. or places where there's a lot going on, some of them do it all in one building, some of them don't. but you'll rarely find these superb not-for-profits that haven't thought about this continuum. Um, what's unique about the door is that we've just figured out how to do it all in one building. <laughs> yeah. And and I do think that that's a big difference. I, I do mean, too. When I was at Robin Hood and, and, and one of our grantees would say to me, look, we served 1,000 people and, gave, and got 1,000 people connected to employment. And then the next uh, point was – and we also sent 150 of those 1,000 – to mental health programming. I inherently didn't believe that that referral was that meaningful. Mm-hmm. Because unless that not-for-profit could tell me that those 150 referrals got all the way down to finishing some level of treatment and they could show me some sort of outcomes results, it was in the ether. That's right. And I don't believe that referral is changing the lives of kids. I don't believe that referral is public policy. Mm-hmm. I think referral is what it is. Mm-hmm. And there's a big, big leap for a young adult who's 18 years old to travel to a brand new organization and engage in mental health services because somebody you trust told you to go there. Yeah, that's where the friction and, comes and from. I, and I, People and I, just don't do it. And I think that government – and and, and I, it's not lost on me. I mean when I took this job, I marched down to City Hall. I marched down to OMB and said, don't you realize – that you all are the only ones that have the power to create a condition where not-for-profits can, can, in effect, collaborate and put multiple sets of deliverables within their structure. Mm -hmm. You can incentivize that because you are the driver of the core of the bulk of this money. And I think it takes a courageous mayor to actually stand up and do that. Yeah, and, and they have to appreciate how people actually live their lives. And that is the difference. And nonprofits and sometimes government doesn't do it. It's the way they would like to, them to live their lives, but yeah. it's not the way they live them. Let me get you out on this, Erica. 11,000 young people every single year. Lots of uplifting stories. Tell me one that really made an impact on you. There was a young man who was uh, a student at Broom Street Academy who came to this country from Africa having been orphaned. And... He didn't speak the language. He came to us in the ninth grade. 
he lived part of the time on the floor in his brother's apartment in the Bronx. He lived part of his time in a back room at Starbucks Mm. because he befriended the manager of a Times Square Starbucks. And he lived part of his time um, in a homeless shelter. He came to the door at 7 in the morning every day so that he could have breakfast. Then he'd go to Broom Street Academy, our high school, and he'd stay at the door until we kicked him out at night because he had nowhere else to go. Mm. Um, He graduated. He aced the SAT. He was a superb student. And under our current federal administration, he wasn't eligible for aid because he wasn't legal. Mm Mm-hmm. And we hustled our tush off to make sure that a school would, a private school, private college, would give him a full ride. And he's a sophomore in college. Great. And he used every service that Broom Street and the door had. He ate with us. He was part of our youth council. Um, He was in our arts program. Uh, He was a student with us. And if the door hadn't been there for him, he would not have thrived. And that's why you do this work. And that's why we do this work. Well, Eric Weingartner, the Chief Executive Officer of The Door and University Settlement, thank you so much for being here this evening. Great to have you, Demer. And that is this week's show. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And do return next Sunday evening for The Business of Giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of The Business of Giving.